This week on the Myths and Legends podcast, it's the story of the Lambton Worm. It's an English folktale where you'll see that if you don't want to go to Mass, just stay at home. Don't just stand in the river cussing for all the children in the village to hear. Then, on the Creature of the Week, I'll try to make a catchphrase happen. You'll see the necessity of setting up a black market for stolen butter. This is the Myths and Legends podcast, episode 25. This is where you get to make it right. This is a podcast where I tell stories from folklore that have shaped our world. Some are incredibly popular stories you think you know, but with surprising origins. Others are stories you probably haven't heard, but really should. This week, it's the legend of the Lambton Worm, a famous local legend of a dragon from Northeast England. It's a listener suggestion, so thank you to Ruby Malvolio, that's his name on Twitter, for letting me know about this fantastic little story. It's set right in the middle of the Middle Ages, possibly around 1200 AD. We haven't talked about a lot of stories from this period. I don't know if I've really talked about what the Middle Ages are, but they are, super broadly, the time for the fall of Rome in about 476 AD to the Renaissance, or early modern period. The Middle Ages are divided into three different stages. The Early Middle Ages, the High Middle Ages, and the Late Middle Ages. The Early Middle Ages are considered the Dark Age, and generally a bad time for everyone. What with people seen as barbarians attacking cities, Vikings slaughtering monks and, well, everyone, and comparatively very, very few educated people, or historians, to keep track of the craziness. The High Middle Ages were a bit more stable, though they also had the Crusades, which were pretty terrible for everyone. The late Middle Ages started in the 1300s and included the end of the Crusades, as well as the Black Death and very long, protracted wars. Progress ground to a halt, and when everything was said and done, the world population was half of what it was in the High Middle Ages. This story takes place in the High Middle Ages. It's in pre-Reformation, pre-Anglican England, so the main characters are Catholic. Okay, now we can get started. So, during the Middle Ages, when England was largely Catholic and sending warriors to fight in the Crusades, John Lambton, on a Sunday morning, was fishing. And he was angry. Nothing had been biting all morning. Oh, a few minutes in, he had been pleasant. It was still early. So what if the salmon didn't bite immediately? After an hour, he was muttering curses to himself. After three hours... All the churchgoers heading to Mass could hear him swearing. They weren't appalled that he was skipping Mass yet again. That judgment had passed years ago. They were, however, appalled that he was cussing so loudly. They were peasants, and he the son of the local lord, but they were on their way to church. Maybe just don't scream the cuss words. On particularly bad mornings like this one, the young men would shout back at him, while the others with children rushed past to evade the constant barrage of curse words. John didn't care. He was John Lambton, the future Lord Lambton, after all. Suddenly, something bit. John laughed aloud. Finally. He pulled and pulled against the mass at the end of the line. It was a shadowy, murky spot in the water starting to take form until... Wait. What was that? The catch emerged from the water. Eyes locked on John with a hungry, angry face of a predator. It had the head of a salamander, and nine holes on each side of its mouth. Unsure why, John continued to reel in the creature. It was about three feet long, slimy and black like an eel, but with two hind legs and two front legs. 
Staring and taken aback by the sudden odor, John couldn't bring himself to touch it. He cursed even louder than he had before. "'What ails you?' asked a voice behind him. "'And what have you caught that you should stain the Lord's Day with such language?' "'I I think I've caught the devil himself,' John replied, eyeing the horrible worm that hung on his line. Looking behind him, John spotted an old man, who must have picked his way down quietly during the struggle to wrangle the creature ashore. "'This bodes no good for you and yours.' warned the old man. You can't cast him back. You have caught him. Now you must keep him. Keep him, John questioned. Why would... But glancing back towards the old man, John saw that he had disappeared. John told himself that the old man had probably run away quickly back to the road in the few seconds without making a sound. Sure, because there's nothing at all incredibly ominous about a wizened old man appearing out of nowhere and then disappearing as mysteriously as he came. John returned to the task at hand, slightly more afraid. The long, black, eel-like creature flailing on the line looked at John and snapped its jaws. The old man had been right about one thing. John couldn't let the beast go here. As soon as it hit the water, it would come after him. He had an idea and quickly gathered up his things with one hand, while gripping the fishing pole with the other hand and keeping the thing above the water. He stood in front of a well not far from the river. John thought that if he dropped the thing down there, it would just have days before it starved to death. There wouldn't be any way out, and it couldn't climb back up to get him. It was perfect. He couldn't make himself touch it, though. So he just took the line and hit the eel-like worm against the side of the well until it tore free from the hook, disappearing into the darkness of the hole. Moments later, a loud splash echoed up the well, followed by silence. Seeing as how the creature wasn't shooting out of the water and going for his throat, this proved a better idea than releasing it back into the river. John congratulated himself as he headed back to the estate. John Lampton went about his life, and within days, he had forgotten all about the monstrous little creature they had cast down the well. And as a very quick aside, in some versions, the creature is no longer than his thumb. But for the story's sake, I thought the three-foot-long creature made more sense. He forgot about it, that is until news started trickling in from town of a well where the water had gone foul. A few people had become extremely sick. Though they had recovered, guilt lingered in John's mind. He guessed that the worm had died and polluted the well. He heard that the people stopped using it, so he figured he didn't need to tell anyone. His action had cost the town a well, but the problem had solved itself. Solved itself, until one day a passerby found streaks of blood on the ground leading up to the well, on the mouth of the well, and trailing down into the darkness. The witness brought the news into town, creating quite a buzz until a farmer came forward, stating that a couple of his sheep had gone missing in the past week. This continued. At night, animal shrieks filled the air. In the morning, blood stained the top of the well. John paced the floor from the safety of his estate. The worm was alive in there. Somehow. It had to be. He should have killed it when it was helpless on his line, or put it back into the river where it could have swam to some other town. He was responsible now. And it was only a matter of time before the town was destitute, or worse. The creature decided to expand its menu, to include children. It was all his fault, and he must make it right. So, John Lambda did the only honorable thing he could imagine. He left town immediately, and joined the Crusades. He would make this right by serving the church in the Middle East. By killing a lot of people. Maybe when he came back... Things would be all right.
the Crusades are incredibly complex. There are so many reasons and motivations behind them that to really do them justice, I would need to spend half of the episode talking about them, and that would really derail the narrative. Basically, John Lambton was leaving to go fight slash pillage in Eastern Europe, the Middle East, or North Africa, depending on the time period. For doing that, he would be given indulgences. The Crusades were very dark and sad, and though they're mentioned in the story, they don't really play a huge role. Someone could and has devoted a whole podcast to them. There's one called The History of the Crusades, if you're interested in some dark, violent, and profound hypocrisy. I'll link that in the show notes. But back to the story, I would imagine the free indulgences were John Lambton's reason for going. An indulgence, briefly, was a way to reduce the penance required for sin on earth, or time that must be sent in purgatory after a person has died. We won't be getting into the weeds of church history. Basically, this was John's effort to find forgiveness for his sin. Yep, crusading was mainly to get forgiveness for sending a dangerous creature loose in his community, but also mainly to get rich and gain renown while doing so. One day... The townspeople noticed a trail of black slime leading away from the darkness, out of the well, and toward the river. The black slime killed whatever grass it touched. A peasant followed the trail until it stopped at a hill. Looking up, he noticed that parts of the hill were black and scaly. It, oh, there was, unmistakably, a black dragon coiled around the entire hill seven times, and it was sleeping. The peasant backed up slowly until he thought he was out of earshot, though who really knows how well dragons can hear. Then he sprinted as fast as he could back towards the town, to warn everyone. That night, darkness had fallen, and everyone was scared of the dragon. They were already shut safely in their homes. It wasn't until after midnight that they heard the panicked bellowing of a cow off in the distance. A chilling crunch, and then silence. The next day, a farmer found the remains. This continued night after night, the dragon taking a few sheep or a cow. Soon, though, the dragon moved on to the surrounding villages. They, unfortunately, knew nothing about the dragon until children began disappearing in the night. The townspeople, happy for a moment that they could at least resume using their well, ended up just boarding it up after bucket upon bucket showed nothing but putrid, rotting remains of farm animals past. These remains had amassed for years while the creature grew from a snake-like worm to a dragon. There was some small bit of justice in all this, though. Worm Hill, as it became known, was part of the estate belonging to John's father, Lord Lambton. The dragon became increasingly focused on the Lambton estate, slowly bleeding it dry of both livestock and wealth. Then, one day, Lord Lambton saw the dragon crawling up the hill towards the castle. In broad daylight, he, for some reason, didn't panic, but instead told his servants to bring some milk. Yes, milk. A massive stone trough sat out front, and the servants promptly filled it with milk from nine cows, nearly 20 gallons total. They poured the milk into the brim, all while the dragon stared at them. The servants were sweating, expecting at any moment to be devoured, so they were surprised to see the dragon simply bend down and guzzle the warm milk. Then, it just went home. Sleepy after the milk, the dragon left to take a nap. Fortunately for the villagers, it was so sleepy that it didn't go out that night. But unfortunately for Lord Lambton, it did come back the next afternoon for its milk. Yes, like a hungry toddler, the dragon needed its milk and a nap every afternoon, or else it would rain down destruction and chaos on everything for miles around. As long as it received 20 gallons every day, no one had a problem. If it didn't, well, the Lord would lose a few servants, and the dragon would uproot a tree on its way out, leveling a couple statues and walls for good measure. 
many men tried and failed to kill the monster. Then, far from the south, a new man arrived to destroy the beast. He was a knight of some renown who had fought in one of the earlier crusades. It was late afternoon, and the knight rode up to Penshaw Hill, where the worm was, after the dragon drank its milk, and immediately noticed the stench surrounding the hill. Surrounded by the remains of his predecessors who had failed to destroy the dragon, the hill was an ominous place. No one dared to come close enough to try and remove the bodies, so they remained. The armored knight sat on his horse, spurring on his steed. He drew a sword. He would strike before the dragon was even awake. He galloped closer and closer and closer. The dragon wouldn't even see it coming. Maybe he could wound the beast so horribly that... And then the knight saw it. The tail. He didn't have time to turn around, to stop, or even jump off his horse. He had only a moment to make a stupid face before the massive black tail hit him and his horse, bowling them both over before they even approached the dragon. The knight was thrown clear of his horse and both rolled to a stop. The knight, after being hit by a tail and rolling 20 feet in full armor, was sore. He scrambled to his sword and rose to his feet, ready to take on the dragon. As soon as the much smarter horse got to his feet, he took off and was gone. The knight watched as the dragon slowly uncoiled himself from the hill, crawling like a demonic gecko towards him. Unlike Fafnir in episode 3D, this dragon doesn't talk. This dragon is more like the other English dragon we've seen in the podcast, the one with Yvain in episode 1C, who is more like a very large, dangerous animal. The knight gripped his sword and shield. He wasn't going to be taken unaware again. Rearing its head high, the dragon struck down with its claws, and the knight blocked the blow. It snapped at the knight, but the knight bashed it in the face. It tried to attack from the side, yet the knight parried, slicing the dragon deeply. At the sight of its own blood, the dragon became even more enraged than baseline dragon rage and began attacking the knight without reserve. In its carelessness, the knight found an opening and sliced the dragon's arm off. He stood, congratulating himself while the dragon shrieked. He had done it. That's when he felt the tree. While they were fighting, the dragon had been uprooting a tree with its tail. When the knight relaxed its guard, the dragon whipped a fully grown tree across the knight, hard. The knight's arm was broken, with at least a few of his ribs. It hurt to breathe, but he would survive, for in severing an arm, he had dealt the dragon a mortal blow. But then he saw something more terrifying than a fully grown tree being used as a weapon against him. With its intact arm, the dragon casually picked up its severed limb. As he placed the detached arm where it used to be, slime and sinews emerged from the dragon's body, knitting it back into place. The dragon needed only to place the arm back on itself, and it was healed. Leaving his sword, the knight struggled to his feet. He wouldn't fight this thing. He couldn't fight this thing. If it could heal itself, escape was his only option. The fully healed dragon saw the knight limping off as fast as he could, so the beast calmly and casually wrapped its tail around the uprooted tree. The dragon swatted at the fleeing knight, knocking him once more to the ground. The man scrambled to his feet, but 14 or 15 more beatings from the tree solved that, leaving him a crumpled pile of armor and blood. The dragon sauntered over, gripped his tail around the knight, and squeezed him hard enough to crush any bones that still remained. Just to be sure. Then, he returned to his hill, coiled around it, and went back to sleep.
Almost seven years to the day after John Lambton left, he was riding back to his father's estate. He hadn't heard from home in all that time, though his father would be happy to see that the Crusades had made him a rich man. Well, richer. He was already heir to the estate and would be a medieval feudal lord, so it wasn't like he would ever really need money. He just had more of it now. What he was most proud of, though, was that he'd become a warrior. He had seen war, and not just survived, but thrived. As he rode up to his father's estate, however, nothing was as he remembered it. In the twilight, he saw crumpled walls and fallen statues. The forest was spotty and sparse now, just full of deep holes and spindly little trees. A giant stone trough stood out front, but the place seemed almost deserted. Where it once had hummed with business and honored guest, it was now quiet and bleak. John rode up to the house and pushed open the door to find his father, terribly aged, sitting by smoldering ashes. The old man stood when he saw his son, rejoicing that John was home at last. John Lambton, sick with guilt when he learned of the dragon, confessed everything to his father. Though initially angry that his son had brought such a curse on them all, Lord Lambton forgave him. The son looked at his armor and a bag on his horse and thought to himself, I can do something about this. I must. It's my fault, and I can't just keep delaying this responsibility by going off to foreign countries to fight in a war and pillage. I, I can't, right? That's not really an option this time. Okay, just checking. Yes, this is my responsibility, John said to his father. I will kill this monster. Lord Lambton, though worried about his son, was overjoyed. He told John that his sin was pardoned, despite that not really being something a feudal lord could do, and told him of a wise woman, not too far away. In one version, she's a witch, and I kind of like that idea, that this lord felt so out of options that he sought out a witch to consult. John Lambton left that evening, and soon he was riding up to her dwelling. I wish I could elaborate on how this witch, or wise woman, looked, but the stories don't really give any other description other than he went to a wise woman. There, he sat down, and he was convinced of her wisdom, or skills at divination, when she told him it was all his fault, and he and he alone could free them from the dragon. He told her he would give his life to free them. Maybe you'll need to do so, she said, and sat back. You and you alone can kill the worm. You must follow my instructions exactly. Go to the smithy, and have your armor studded with razor-sharp spearheads. Then, go to the worm's hill when he is away, and wait for him to return. Try your skill against him, and if it's God's will, he will give you deliverance from this task. John Lambton swallowed hard. He was going to face this dragon. It was time for him to grow up, to put aside childish things. Where once he had gone fishing, and hit people going to mass with a barrage of curse words on Sunday mornings instead of going to church himself, now he would rely on God for deliverance. This I will do, he said. One thing more, the woman added, sitting up and grabbing his hands. She looked him squarely in the eye. If you do kill this dragon, you must put to death the first living thing you meet as you cross the threshold of your family's estate. Do this, and everything will be well with you and your family. But if you do not, no Lambden for nine generations will die in his bed. Which is open to some interpretation, but I read as them being basically cursed to a violent death. Fail not, the old woman warned. She sat back and waved him out of the house. John's first stop was at the smithy, where he had taken his heavy and costly armor from the Crusades. The smithy toiled through the night to affix spearheads to the suit of armor, according to the woman's instructions, giving John Lampton a serious bonus to his armor class. John went to the chapel and prayed, spending the rest of the night there. 
he was ready to make this right. If he survived, it would only be by the grace of God. He accepted that, if he died, it would be a fitting price for all the dragon had done to his town. The next day, he rode off to confront the beast. While the smithy had been at work, John talked to his father. There was the issue of killing the first living thing he saw crossing the threshold of his home. Back when John had returned home from the Crusades, he had been surprised that his favorite dog from childhood, Boris, was still alive. Pushing 15, the dog was racked with ailments, blind, and could barely move. Boris was the obvious choice of what to kill, as his time remaining was limited. As an aside, okay, I get that you need to kill something, but your favorite hound? Killing anything is rough, but why not a chicken? Or a pig, so that not only can you keep your family from being cursed, but you can celebrate with bacon afterwards. I also kind of elaborated on the dog's ailments. The stories just call it his favorite hound from childhood. You have to think that he's been gone for seven years at this point, and his childhood extended past that, so the dog would have to be pretty old. Really though, I'm just trying to justify the super sad choice of killing your favorite dog when you don't need to kill your favorite dog. Riding up to meet the dragon, John reviewed his plan on the way to the hill. On the way back, he would blow his bugle three times, signaling for the servants to release the hound, who would happily run to his old master and his death. Riding on, John could see that the dragon was early in coming back. He wouldn't have time to reach the hill. He stopped, fittingly, in the river, almost at the exact spot where he had caught the vile worm years ago. Dismounting, he slapped the horse to run off, to avoid the fight, and then waited. The dragon looked at John Lambton, and it was as if he knew that this was the original captor who had cast him into the well. The dragon salivated and charged. The dragon, though, seemed uninterested in engaging the man in a real fight. He didn't want any strong blows that might accidentally end it all too quickly. No, the dragon seemed to want to savor it. The dragon rushed past John, taking a few slices from John's sword. In that moment, John Lambden caught sight of the dragon's formidable tail beginning to loop around him. It wasn't touching him yet, but John could see that it was coiled, ready to crush him. At this moment of realization, however, it was already too late, and the dragon's tail cinched around John. Surely, this was the end. To John's surprise, however, the dragon's signature move of crushing life out of people slowly wasn't the horrendous, bone-destroying power John anticipated. Then, even more surprisingly, the dragon cried out. It was then that John remembered, and understood the reason, for the spearhead studying his armor. As the dragon's tail had tightened, constricting the armor and its contents, the beast had unknowingly stabbed itself many, many times. Then, in an attempt to escape, it had pulled away, shrouding its thick, muscular tail into ribbons. Blood poured out into the stream. The dragon, pained but enraged, redoubled his efforts, closing the remains of his tail again around John. But the spears hadn't gone away, and the pain only increased as he was cut further. The worm unwound himself from John and tried to crawl away, but John jumped to his feet, sword still in hand. Running up to the fleeing dragon, he stomped down on one of its wounds. The beast shrieked in panic, and John took his sword, slicing the menace in half of the torso. His legs and tail were lost downstream, but John climbed up its back. It was snorting fire and poisonous foam, 
because apparently it can do that too, and standing on its back so it couldn't move, John cut off the head. It was dead. No longer clawing at the bottom of the river, trying to get away, the pieces of the dragon drifted in the current, out from under John, who was barely able to wade back to the bank in his wet, heavy armor. His horse would be somewhere, but he had to get home. He had done it. As he passed the gate to the castle, he blew his bugle three times to allow the servants time to set the poor dog loose. Re-remembering the desolation as he approached, John was glad it was finally over. God had forgiven him and granted him deliverance. He hadn't felt this free or happy in years. And that's when he saw him. His father was running out. Tears streaming, beaming, praising God his son was alive. The dragon was dead. The son looked down in panic. He had just passed the threshold of the castle. His father had forgotten about the curse. And now, if John didn't kill his father, no lamb would die peacefully in their bed for nine generations. The curse, John Lampton yelled to his father who was running toward him, arms outstretched. Oh no, the father realized in horror. Slowly, John looked at the sword in his hand. Then met his father, who read the implication, taking one step back. I can't, John said, and his shoulders slumped. It was then he felt his favorite dog, who had finally arrived, pawing at his foot. Maybe, maybe a death is a death, John thought. Maybe it would still count. He took no great joy in doing it, but he brought his sword down on his favorite hound, hoping that it would be enough. He sheathed the sword when it was done and nodded to his father. They had done it. The dragon was dead, and they could begin to rebuild their castle, the village, and their lives. As the years passed, they were happy to be free of the dragon, but the curse hung over them as they wondered if it would still take place. Of course, they wouldn't know until it was too late. I don't know that we can assume that Lord Lambton and John Lambton died violently, it doesn't really say, but the curse in the Lambton family is an interesting thing. English newspaper articles place this story back around the time of the 12th century. And according to a historical record, at least four Lamptons in the nine-generation time frame died violently, and not in their beds. I'm not sure how John Lampton died, if he even existed, but in the next generation, a Robert Lampton drowned. And in the next two generations, a Lampton each died in war. And in the ninth and supposedly final generation from the curse, the Lampton died in a carriage while crossing a bridge. Maybe not particularly violent, but also not in his bed. Four out of nine, while not really better than chance, is still pretty significant. The legend remains pretty well known in England, and doing research for this story, I found a newspaper article from 1941 speculating on the curse. It was announcing the death of the 20-year-old Viscount Lambton by supposed self-inflicted gunshot wound. It then went into detail on the tragedy that was still stalking the Lambton family. One cousin of the man who died in 1941 disappeared off an ocean liner. Another died in a car accident. Still another collapsed when she was out helping her granddaughter shop for a wedding. This grandmother died on her granddaughter's wedding day. It seems like there might be a bit of confirmation bias here, which is a psychological phenomenon where we look for things to confirm our own theories, even without realizing we're doing so. And also, not dying in your bed is a super broad category for deaths, and really, not even that bad of a curse. I mean... We spend two-thirds of our day outside of our beds, and we all die eventually, so it seems like the wise woman, or witch, 
was less revealing the curse and more so just making an educated guess. I liked the story more when following the character development of John Lambton, from teenager who skipped church to go fishing and cuss up a storm, to a man who did what needed to be done to solve a problem he created and put his life on the line to rescue his community. Like many legends, this one is tied to local places. The associated places, though, seem a bit confusing. Some stories say that the Dragon's Hill is Penshaw Hill, which actually has ridges that, according to legend, are from the dragon, but which people actually think were formed by a triple rampart, Iron Age Hill Fort. The other hill is aptly named Worm Hill in Fatfield. I know there are people to whom this legend is a local legend, so please let me know exactly what it is, and I'll include it in the next show. Also, while I'm talking about accuracy, in some versions, the Lampton Worm has legs, and in others, it's like a big snake. I like the version with legs better, but just keep the legless version in mind for the test on Friday. Next week, there'll be some Japanese fairy tales, and like the last time, they're very good, but such well-constructed, tight little stories that I can't even give a preview, because it will give too much away. I want to say thanks to Free From Ads, JMac2000, S Farmer 4, Fairborn Wood, Stella QC, Stitcher82, Harris21, Dog 2123, Mukuhu, and Sims92, Lutherine, and Selena Stacy for the reviews on iTunes. As always, thank you so much. It's an encouragement, and it's a big help to enable people to find the show. If you'd like to leave a review, you can find the show at iTunes.mythpodcast.com. There's also a membership thing on the site. If you'd like to show your support for the podcast, you can do so for less than $5 per month. That's right, you can get six months for less than the price of a Japanese shouting vase. It's a vase you can shout into when you're angry. It will hold all your anger. Which, okay, but I guess just don't let your kids accidentally open it, because, like the kids on their way to church passing by John Lambton, they might be hit with a barrage of yelling and cuss words. If you're interested in the membership, check out support.mythpodcast.com. The creature this week, well, creatures, are the para and the smiragato. Both are from Finland. I'm including them together because they're fairly similar creatures who will steal from your neighbors for you to try to make you rich. I'll talk about the para first. Its name comes from the Swedish word burra, which means bearer, and it can take the form of any domestic animal, such as a dog, cat, or frog was oddly mentioned, though I don't think of a frog as a domestic animal. These creatures will steal things for you from your friends and neighbors in an effort to make you rich. Well, the problem? They only steal regular household goods, so butter, milk, cream, rye, etc. So unless you already have the infrastructure to move stolen black market butter, you're just going to be stockpiling stolen perishables. And your neighbors will wonder why you're baking so much recently, seemingly unaffected by the butter crime wave. The other creature is the smiragato, which means butter cat. It functions pretty similarly to the para, though it only really takes one form cat, if you're wondering. It steals a wider range of items, but way more butter than the para, thus the name. Sadly, he's not actually made of butter. That would have just been too amazing. I really only brought up the butter cat because of his name, and to let you know that if something goes missing around your house, you can blame it on the butter cat. Sidebar, if something goes missing, can we start making the phrase, blame it on the butter cat, a thing? I really want to make it a thing. That's it for this week. The theme song is by the band Broke for Free, and the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Colmes. Links to the other music I used in the show notes. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll see you next time. A new year full of surprises. 
But one thing is always predictable. Postage costs go up. Stamps.com gives you crazy discounts of up to 89% off USPS and UPS services. So when postage goes up, your business will barely notice the change. Stamps.com is like your own personal post office, wherever you are. You can even take orders on the go with the mobile app. No lines, no traffic, no waiting. Schedule package pickups, automatically find the cheapest and fastest shipping options, and seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. There's even a supply store where you can stock up on mailing supplies, labels, even printers. Stamps.com has been indispensable for over 1 million businesses just like yours. All you need is a computer or phone and printer. Take a chunk out of your mailing and shipping costs this year with Stamps.com. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a special offer that includes a four-week trial, plus free postage, and free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM.